Hey everyone, welcome to episode 147 of the District 3 Podcast. My name is Irvin. Today, I'm joined by a guest who I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a while, so I'm glad he's finally here. He's the former director of Catholic Charities in Springdale and also is the author of this new memoir called The Possibility of All Things, available on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really just really happy that he's here, uh, Frank Head. Frank, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And it's been a while since I've seen you. I think it's been about two or three years. It was at a event. I believe it was at Arkansas Immigrant Defense. I Do you think remember that? So. Uh, what yeah. were we celebrating that day? I don't know. Maybe maybe their grand opening actually. Oh, I think <laughs> it was the grand opening. Yeah. You're right. And then but COVID came along behind it and knocked us all yeah back a notch. Yeah, and I, and I think. Back then, you had already started mentioning that you were that you've been working on this book. I so have. I've kind of been checking in with you, being like, "Hey, <laughs> you know, when when it's out, we'd love to have you on the podcast." So I'm glad we're here. And I've been reading the book. I was telling you uh, before we started recording that I'm probably about like in the hundredth page. Myra and I will read the book at night and take turns reading it. She reads to me, or I read to her. And uh, it's been it's been a beautiful journey just kind of listening about your story, because this is a book based on your life and Phyllis, who's your wife's life as well. And your, your uh, adventurous parts of your life, but also really some difficult times in your life as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what led to you wanting to write this book? Because this is something that you've been journaling since a long time ago. So you've been keeping up with all this information for a while now. And now you just put it on a book. Right. That's right. Um, you know, it, my joke with Phyllis is that I've been writing this book for 74 years, which is how old I am. Mm. Um, there, there are parts in it that um, that I grew up. I grew up traveling to Mexico. I mm. was born in Houston, Texas, and uh, every year my father would take us for three or four weeks just traveling around Mexico in an old station wagon and mm. camping. And this was the 1950s, so not a lot of people went camping. But <laughs> uh, my, my roots, my connections to there go way back. And um, so, yeah, in a sense, there's a lot of things that I wanted to say, but I sort of had to live my life before I could sit down and write them. <laughs> so how do you keep track of this? Uh, were you writing this information? Because it's very detailed. <laughs> And this was years, years, years ago. You know, I don't even remember what happened last week sometimes. So how do you keep track of this information before? Because um, I'm not sure if when you started journaling everything, it was pre-laptop, right? <laughs> Pre-tablet, pre-all these electronical <laughs> devices. How did you keep track of everything? Um, I did. I did. I've always kept journals, but, but not so, n- not like a daily diary, you know, blow by blow everything that happened. Um, the to give you a little idea of the books to, that helped to answer that question, it's it's parallel chap alternating chapters uh, from when my wife Phyllis fell into a coma and was in a coma for almost five months, uh, and that was in 2011, and the year that we met 40 years before, um, and. Um, the the part where the medical part, the part where she was lived through this coma and survived, um, I, I did keep part of the process of helping the healer was keeping meticulous notes every day with mm-hmm. the help of a number of friends 
so that we didn't miss something, so that if uh, a doctor walked in the room and a friend was there with her and he said we discovered something, maybe that message would get to me, maybe it wouldn't. So, so I had this medical log for the whole time she was sick. That helped a lot in going back and writing it. But, um, but the other part, the part when we met now 50 years ago mm-hmm. uh, and traveled to Mexico together, um, I, that part is, is indelibly written in my head. Okay. And uh, I uh, especially, I'm a very visual person, so uh, I, I can remember the way to get from uh, one town I've only been to once to another place exactly. I might not remember your name or your face, but, but that kind of thing. So, so that, the events described in the book are pretty much uh, burned into my memory. Mm. And what made you decide to do that kind of parallel story mm. where you went from uh, Phyllis being in two different medical centers, or it might have been more than two, mm-hmm. and, and then going back to the journey through Mexico. What made you decide to go back and forth? Yeah, she was actually in five hospitals five in Fayetteville over. over that period. Um, Washington Regional, I think Regency, w- right? Washington Regional, and then Regency, which which is now where uh, the medical school is uh, on College Avenue, but uh, was then a floor there. And then um, we went to uh, Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis and uh, back to Fayetteville, the city hospital, and then ultimately to a rehab hospital. But to answer your question, what made, you know, what made me think of this parallel stories? Um, so one day I came home uh, February, late February of 2011, and my wife Phyllis was uh, asleep in bed in the afternoon, and she had a doctor's appointment not anything big, but a doctor's appointment. And, and I made my lunch and waited around for a while. And then I went up to our room and uh, read a newspaper, I think, and got to be time to go. And I, and I started to wake her up. She never took naps. So it was kind of odd, but I let her sleep. Well, when I tried to wake her up, I couldn't. She was unconscious. <sighs> Had to call an ambulance, and the whole thing started. Um, so from that point on, um, when she didn't come back to consciousness, of course, friends and family around the country were worried and, and wanted to be updated. And anybody that's had someone in close to them seriously ill, part of the problem is like you're inundated with friends and family that want to know, yeah. how's she doing? Oh, I'm so sorry. How's she doing? And you're overwhelmed. And especially when the news is nothing's happened, yeah. she's terrible. You mm-hmm. don't want to have to repeat that 10 yeah. times a day. So there's this great nonprofit website called caringbridge.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they set it up and they make for a non-tech person really simple, give you your own website and, or their own slot on their website uh, that anybody can get to. And you can just type in every day once what's going on, and then oh. everybody can click there and find cool. out. It's, it's, a, it's a great service, caringbridge.org. So I started a blog there. You know, they don't call it a blog, but that's what it was. You know, and, uh, and just once to let day, people know, that would, that would be around 2010, 2011? 
that was that was in February of 2011. That's when she fell unconscious. So I started writing this daily blog. Well, after a while, when a few weeks went by and, and it was clear that she wasn't going to immediately uh, be better, um, some days it was not much to say. So rather than just typing in, but people were got used to reading this and wanting to know an update. So I would just say not a lot of news to report today, but um, let me tell you how we met. And so mm. I started getting the idea there on days when not much was happening. I'd go back to the time that we met, which was in a in the plaza in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, just randomly, uh, if you believe in randomness, crossed each other's paths, and um, and our story began. So I I started telling that story in sequence, and uh, so that it it seemed to work, and it it kept people in touch and sort of sending her good vibrations. And uh, from that, it, it took me another 10 years to write the book because although I wrote that blog, it, that became my raw material. But uh, I, I had a lot of work to do to make it into a book. Mm. I think one of the things that I found really interesting and, and funny at the same time is there was a, a story that you talked about where you had kind of like had a disagreement with Phyllis <laughs> and uh, and she ended up like leaving. <laughs> and uh, and then you were like, well, how are you going to see her again? Because back then there was no there's no Facebook Messenger. There's, there's no cell phones. You, know, I, I, yeah. you, you can't just message her tomorrow and be like, hey, meet me here. But you told her about meeting you, I believe, at Cuernavaca, <laughs> I believe. And, I, and you don't even know if she's going to show up or not, right? Because it's like if she doesn't like no. you, she just I, doesn't show I, up and that's it. I didn't have – not only didn't I have a cell phone because they didn't exist, but I didn't even have her home address anywhere. Mm. So, the, you know, if, if we didn't accidentally meet again, uh, it was gone forever. And, yeah, um, uh, we – a week after we – parted ways and, and casually said, well, yeah, maybe if we go through Cuernavaca, we'll, uh, we'll you even, see yeah, I think you. you even said what day. You said next week. I yeah. Think. I, said, uh, <laughs> so I, I don't even know what day. I'll see you in a week. <laughs> I'll see you in a week in Cuernavaca. And, uh, and I drove slowly into that town and uh, came. There's, there's two main plazas. Like every Mexican town's got a principal plaza. Well, Cuernavaca has two kind of side by side, and I drove right between them, and there she was with her dog walking across the street. So she got back on on the bus, and mm. we were off and running. <laughs> and and one also just kind of, at the, I think, not in the, in, kind of in the initial part of the book, you talk about the war. You talk about Vietnam. Yeah. You talk about being anti-war, having mm. those feelings of being anti-war. Um, how was that back then? Like, was it... Like, is it, was it something that people could talk publicly about without feeling embarrassed or uh, scared for their own safety or, or life, talking about being anti-war? I know there was anti-war movement, you know, which led to, like, Woodstock and, and all these things mm. that happened. But um, reading it now, for me, is it just kind of gets me thinking, how was it to have those opinions back then when you were, you know, a young man? Yeah. Well, you know, strangely enough, um, it feels a lot like today the political climate, completely different circumstances. It's not about a war that our country's fighting, but it was about families being split over, you know, what they thought the country 
fighting a war, not fighting a war, uh, political parties split, uh, you know, uh, just a lot of dissension and, and strife. And uh, it definitely uh, singled you out. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and were in Texas too, right? So was it was even in, worse there? I was in Texas and it was, yeah, it was pretty bad. I mean, my uh, my draft board, who I applied to for a number of years uh, to be a conscientious objector. So a conscientious objector, uh, you, you have to prove that your religious belief precludes you from killing someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in those days, the... The only they, they didn't like to give that at all, and they didn't believe anyone believed that, and um, the the only people who could were certain religious, mostly Christian religious sects, who, you know, taught that no one, none of their believers should participate in war. Well, I was raised was raised Protestant, later became Catholic, but you know, uh, the, the Presbyterian Church didn't say you couldn't go to war. So I made this case for a number of years that, um, excuse me, but if I'm a follower of Jesus, this is a guy who died on a cross who refused who refused violence even when he had clear reason to, you know, self-defense. Um, and if, if how much more of an example do I need to prove? So that was... Um, not an easy argument because it wasn't certainly wasn't accepted, and it was uh, it caused a big rift, as I write about in the book with with my in my own family. Yeah, because your family was very very patriotic. Well, uh, actually, that's the odd thing. I, I wouldn't say they were super patriotic. They certainly loved America as I did and do, but um, my father was not a strong believer in. Uh, in the war effort, Mm. what he was a strong believer in was conformity. Mm. It's like, if you're going to get ahead in the world, you can't, you can't have anybody have anything against you. And, and coming out against the war, being a conscientious objector, uh, he had, uh, he had high hopes for me and, uh, wanted me to follow him in business, uh, and then go to law school and become a politician none of which I had any interest in whatsoever. Mm. So there was a lot of conflict. Can you talk a little bit about, you also mentioned something about like people in your family having like a premonition of things. Like for example, your dad showing up (laughs) randomly in Mexico, not Mexico, was it New Mexico? New Mexico. Exactly where you were at. In times where you didn't have that location (laughs) button on your phone where you can find your relatives where they're at. These were like pre that time. So for me, that was crazy to read that he was able to find you out of nothing. Uh, it uh, it was crazy, and um, yeah, uh, he he had this ability. He didn't talk much about it, but it happened several times uh, in my lifetime. And uh, I I now I, I tend to think of that as as a gift that you don't want to abuse or do it for a party favor, but. Uh, in your life when you need to find something, having the trust and faith that you'll be guided there. So, yeah, what happened was uh, uh, my dad and I had this fight over me refusing to go in the Army. I I applied as a conscientious objector. I eventually won that status, but it took me years. And in the meanwhile, I actually got drafted. 
and I refused, did not show up for my, I, I went to my induction, which is where they actually take you in, but they give you a month to get your stuff together. Mm. Well, I did not show up, mm. uh, instead took off and I was going to Canada, and at the very last minute I got it. Uh, but um, my dad, oh, I'm sorry, I got lost there. You were asking me, <laughs> repeat the question again early. Well, I was just talking about that. I don't that. want to just ramble. But no, it's okay. I was just talking about that that premonition that you're. Ah, had the premonition. Thank you. It, yeah, for me, so, it didn't make sense. Like, because I was asking, I was even asking Myra. I was like, so, how would he find him yeah. out of nothing? Because I mean, uh, like, how would he know that you're in New Mexico? <laughs> he could have checked the phone books, but I don't know if he would have found you there anyways, or no, where you the, were at. The, the, I was just passing through. Literally, the town Santa Fe. I had just, I showed up the morning. He got there before I did, with no idea that I was coming there. Uh, and this wasn't the, a time before he did that was when I was, uh, oh, what, probably 10 years old. My mother um, had taken my older sister to camp and was driving back. And it was, uh, I don't know where it was, but a long ways away. And uh, she got back um Late one morning, and she was really sleepy, my dad had gone out on a trip with business friends, and he got halfway on this trip on a Sunday morning, and he said, sorry, fellas, but I got to cancel this trip. Mm -hmm. And it was like a two-hour, three-hour drive back home, mm -hmm. and he got home, and he got home a few minutes after my mother fell asleep and ran into a telephone pole like mm -hmm. a block from our house, and... She ended up being okay, but she broke her ankle and was in the hospital, and my sister got hurt. And, and so he, he had that feeling and left before this ever happened. So wow. he, he, he had this ability that it were just a few times it did, but uh, it, the fact that he showed up the day that he did and we ended up having a kind of reconciliation um, about our lives sort of freed me to live go ahead with the rest of my life. And that's the day I walked out in the square and met Phyllis. And it, it, it seemed by what I was reading that you all got along great from the get-go. Would you, would you say that? Would you say that it was something that you all clicked instantly? Uh, definitely. It take a while. Uh, yeah. Because with, uh, with me and Myra, Myra didn't <laughs> like me whenever she met me. She didn't want to talk to me, didn't want to be my friend. And then we ended up going out a year afterwards. So it, for us, there wasn't love at first sight. It was just kind of like we were annoyed at each other. Hey. So, re so reading this together, this book together, we were like, oh, like it actually does happen that it actually, people do meet love at first sight sometimes. <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely we did. But, um, you know, it, every story is different and they're all mm -hmm. great. Uh, I, we did get along really well instantly and we also fought a lot. Mm. You know, you couldn't find two people from more different backgrounds, I don't think. I mean, I guess we could have not spoken the same language, but other than that, I mean, she came from a, an immigrant Italian family growing up in New York, and I came from uh, uh, American, you know, sort of English Isles, but 300 years ago, American family in, in Houston, Texas, and my dad was... Uh, had an equipment business in the oil patch and 
uh, he was all about making as much money as fast as possible. And, uh, and you know, I, did, I had no idea what our ethical, uh, ethnic background was, whereas Phyllis's family, their Italian roots are food and traditions and everything's really yeah. strong to them. So you couldn't find two more different people. Uh, and occasionally uh, our ways of looking at things, uh, like, as you mentioned, was like only about a week after we met when we split up. She mm -hmm. was like, well, if you think you can tell me what to do, <laughs> think again. So uh, it wasn't like we automatically always saw things the same way, mm -hmm. but uh, we did. Uh, Phyllis had been a in her high school senior year. She was a she uh, exchange student in Mexico City, so she already had this uh, love affair with Mexico, mm. and uh, so did I. So when I mentioned to her, "Hey, I'm headed to Mexico." Uh, Already we had something in common there. Mm. That's beautiful. Um, going back to the journey through her medical mm. issues that she had, um, and right now in my reading, I think I'm probably like at like coma day 47 around yeah. there. Um, how long was she in the coma for total? She was total for five and a half months. Wow. So... Um, it's a it's a little strange because, well, her her coma was strange. It, it's not uh, there wasn't when it, it happened because she had a um, uh, an, uh, bacterial meningitis. She got a bacterial infection, which um, spread to her brain, caused her ventricles to swell, and made her unconscious. But um, Dr. Steve Hennigan treated her from the day she was in the hospital and defeated that bacterial infection pretty quickly. Oh, I think uh, he still lives here, right? He he's, still lives here. I think here. he's my Facebook friend. He's an incredible doctor. He keeps well, people informed about COVID now on social media and stuff. He's one of the treasures of this town. But, um, but he solved that really quickly. The problem was that didn't solve her coma. Uh, and, and nobody could tell us why she why she couldn't find consciousness, other than the fact that th these ventricles are fascinating part of your brain. It's mm -hmm. this little walnut-sized organ at the base of your brain, uh, and hers, instead of being walnut-sized, it's swung to the size of an apple. Uh, and, you know, the brain is fit so exactly in its container that uh, for something to swell up three times its size and push against the inside of the brain... Um, it's bound to break a lot of connections, and mm -hmm. that's what it did. And But nobody could tell us what are chances of recovering those, of rebuilding those. And I came to learn that, you know, what is now known about the brain, I mean, I don't know what percent, I'll make up a percent, 50%, 75%, it has only been figured out in the last 10 or 20 years. I was going to ask you if there's <laughs> been progress on that and if you've been keeping up with it too. I do. I, mm. I do keep up with it. And and mostly the progress is in understanding how the brain works. I mean, they used to say if you had a stroke and it affected the part of your brain that controls speech, that you could never talk again because, uh, you know, that that part of the brain was damaged. In fact, it turns out 
the brain can adjust and use different parts of itself to to recreate those. But um, but knowing that you know, in this case, knowledge is really power. The fact that now scientists or doctors uh, know that that can be done means they encourage it to be done. And in Phyllis's case, the one thing that all the doctors told me is, look, you're her hearing doesn't. She doesn't go deaf because she's in a coma. Mm-hmm. The process, her, her, you know, her uh, eardrums haven't been damaged. So sound is still going in, and the brain is still trying to process and make sense of what's being said to her. She just doesn't have the ability to communicate it out. Mm. So the, you need to keep stimulation constantly so that her brain has a chance, works hard, wants to figure out what, what do those words of Irwin mean? What you know? No. I know. I know that, and and that's a very clear mechanical process where the brain lays down tracks uh, and creates a pathway, an electric uh, physical pathway, which is our memory. So she had to be rebuilding all of that. Oof. And you, um, you know, being there with her um, during this coma, um, do you feel that you grew in like? In being in being a more of a patient person, <laughs> having to go having to go through that process because my dad was in a coma for a week and I feel like I grew a lot, yeah. just in being more patient, being more understanding, uh, and then trying to balance that like being hopeful with being realistic yeah. is very difficult too. And I think just by reading the book, you know, it kind of sounds like you uh, the information that you had you didn't really know if she was going to get better or not. You were just kind of hoping and just going day by day, hoping that there was some sort of, of pro- visible progress. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and sometimes sometimes we got signs of that. Um, you know, even, even though she was in a coma for those five months, there were times even a few weeks in or a few months in when uh, a nurse, you know, Nurse Mary would walk in the room, and Phyllis would recognize her voice and say, Hi, Mary. And we would all just, you know, at first we'd celebrate and say, Oh, my God, she's awake. She knows. Uh, But then two or three weeks would go by after that where there was no no conscious contact at all. And mind you, at this point, like one of the things they do to test your, your, your consciousness is like, you know, prick your toe with a pin and see if mm. you if you snap well she she had no reaction to that she was not able to move any part of her body not her fingers toes any part of her body so you know we'd get very excited when there was a breakthrough like that and then we'd go away so did i learn patience um i certainly did and you know i had a lot of time to reflect on uh what life is and what consciousness is this uh, this whole idea of of consciousness, and I think I wrote in there somewhere that that the conscious brain is way overrated, and there's a lot of scientific writing about that now. Which is uh, a quick example is like um, if if a uh, tennis player were were somehow able to consciously decide how to hit a tennis ball back a serve like uh, a woman hitting a ball consciously said okay that ball is coming over at 
75 miles an hour. I need to have my hand back three-fourths of the way back and exactly have it at this point when that ball whizzes by. They never hit a single ball. What happens is from the time of birth, the unconscious brain is watching us. And the first move we make to roll over in our crib, the first move we make to stand up as a baby, the unconscious brain memorizes all the 5,000 steps in our brain that it took. Mm -hmm. And then once we practice it enough, the unconscious brain takes over. And all the things we do all day, including speech and you know somebody says how are you You say great you know you may be terrible but it's just i'm fine you know you you have these unconscious responses so it it taught me a lot of patience and i spent a lot of time thinking like well i know that phyllis is not dead Mm -hmm. but she's not able to communicate in any way to me most of the time so is that all there is that it's is it only, but you don't stop loving someone when they're asleep. Yeah. You know, they're still there. You know, they're going to wake up tomorrow. So, you know, so why is it that when people are unconscious, we think they're so separated from us? Mm-hmm. So I began to really feel her presence and, and feel the journey she was on um, inside her brain to try to come back into the conscious world. Mm-hmm. So uh, I learned a lot of patience and to, to keep me from, being too distraught, I spent a lot of time studying the the science of it and, you know, discovered it's really not that hard for a lay person to, to learn this about someone, you know, especially these days. The, the tools we have are just incredible, you know, with the Internet. So just because you read it doesn't mean you know it, yeah. but at least you, you've got something to apply to your situation. Mm. And talking about patience and time, uh, probably took you a while to write this book right it's i think it's about how many pages long i think it's in like the little over 300 and maybe 70 pages around there um during this process of you writing this book was there something that you learned about yourself yeah 374 pages of it (laughs) (laughs) um maybe something that you acknowledged mm -hmm. whenever you read it that kind of you know just reminded you about something about yourself or that's a really good question. Um, to be to be concise, uh, you know, one thing I learned it it was that that I've been the questions that I pondered in this I, I've wondered about my whole life. Um, there's there's a story I tell in there about being four or five years old and and. My dad put me on a horse. We were out at some, you know, cabin somewhere, and they had horseback riding. Except in those days, uh, they weren't worried about lawsuits, and they would just, (laughs) like, let you get on the horse and ride. You didn't go on a trail ride or anything. And they had this old horse that wouldn't run. Uh, So he put me on him, and I just got to go riding by myself back in in the cedar breaks in the hill country around Austin. And... um, I've remembered my whole life very distinctly this this buck, this deer uh, with a full rack of horns popped up in front of me and he didn't he didn't get scared. He didn't run off. He just stood there and looked at me mm. and then he he took off not running but sauntering on down this trail that was not the way I was supposed to go. And somehow that image stuck in my mind because I wanted to follow him and 
there was something out there that I knew was not part of where I was supposed to be. It was not part of my parents' world. It was not part of the world I was growing into. But uh, it was also very much more real world than what we all take of as city life. And Mm. uh, so that was... That was the connecting thread between the Mexico story uh, with us traveling and with Phyllis being in a coma that I've always wanted to know what reality really, you know, really is. Mm. What, what, what's, what's the truth about us being on the earth as humans? So I can't say that I <laughs> answered that in the book, no. but, but asking that question, I certainly have. And another thing that I... Um that I wanted to ask about the you wrote this book obviously because you felt like you had a story to tell and maybe you wanted to teach people something. What do you think are or what do you hope are some of the takeaways mm. from people reading this book and maybe not knowing your story until they open the pages of this book? What are some takeaways? Yeah. I should have prepared some easy answers for that, <laughs> but um, sorry to put you on the spot. But I'm glad I didn't uh, yeah. because okay. One of the things I don't want people to think um, is, I'll answer it negatively first, I don't want (laughs) them to think because the title is The Possibility of All Things that that if you have enough faith, um, you know, you can solve any medical problem, that somebody who's dying can be saved. It, it, I don't understand that process. Uh, I don't know why uh, I, I have deep faith, but I don't know why you know, things happen to bad things happen to good people, if yeah. you will. Um, I don't have the answer to that, and and I don't claim that that if you do what we did, it's some kind of you know formula to save yourself. Uh, at the same time, I do think it's a formula um, for, especially for those with with illnesses to deal with. Uh, you know, mortal serious illness to yourself or your spouse that. Um, that following some of these patterns, it's like, for one thing, standing up for your your own rights with the medical establishment. Oh, yeah. For, and, and primarily for your right to know. You know, you, you have every right to be told. Uh, and and I, I try to offer some suggestions for not not being arrogant, just because you pick up the phone and Google something that yeah. to tell the doctor, wait a minute, I don't think that's true, you know, after they've spent decades studying. But at the same time, uh, doctors and nurses should be able to explain to you mm-hmm. why. And, and they should be humble enough to admit they're not always right. Yeah. So, so th- that compromise of, of n- not being belligerent, but, but being stubborn enough to say, no, I need to know why that is. And I'm sorry, but that doesn't, what you're doing doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, example in the book was like we were trying to wake Phyllis up out of a coma. And, and the entire community of Fayetteville that we knew was helping us and working on this. And, and out of the blue one night, a nurse who I hadn't met, and we had so many angel nurses, wonderful, but this nurse said she's about to give Phyllis some medicine. I said, oh, excuse me, you know, what, what medication is that? And she said, oh, yeah. it's a sedative. And I'm like, whoa, what, why are you doing that? And she says, well, she's in pain. Well, she wasn't screaming and she wasn't showing any pain. And she says, yeah, but she's got, you know, this swelling. And I'm like, 
no, I'm, I'm not going to authorize that mm-hmm. until I talk to a doctor because we're trying to wake her up. Yeah. So I don't think we want to be giving her a se- Well, I'm not a doctor. Who am I to, you know, uh, and that was her response. Like, I'm a nurse. Do you know how many years of training we go through? Yeah. I know better than you do. And I'm like, well, you may, but <laughs> but until you can, you yeah. know, in common sense explain this to me, I'm not. So there was a lot of that. But uh, for the most part, her medical care was incredible. Uh, and the other part is just in in our experience of 50 years of trying to get along, um, you know, I would like people to see how often we failed and, like, how important it is not to not to give up because you fail, fail personally or fail as a in a relationship. Um, like it's every failure is a chance to learn. And boy, we, we, we've had lots of opportunities. I think that's, that's one thing that's imp- worth noting as well. Um, you talk about, you know, the relationship with you and Phyllis, how things aren't always great, right? There's a lot of arguments and stuff. And I think it's important to normalize, you know, that in relationships there are arguments because sometimes I feel like people see an argument here or there in a relationship or in their own relationship and they view the relationship as a failure. While if I think it's normal to have disagreements, to sometimes have big disagreements, big fights, but ultimately if a person really cares for one another, they're going to remain with them. Um, do you have an opinion on that? Just, yeah, just you, because I know that uh, you you touched on it a little bit already on this on this podcast, and it was something that I've been thinking about recently. Mm. That's why when you brought it up, I yeah. was like, "Let me hear what you have to <laughs> say on it." No, I, I think uh, you're you're absolutely right, and it's so important. And I think you know, being of the older generation, they always tend to say, "Oh, this younger generation does this and that," and a lot of people my age will say, "Oh, this younger." Generation, you know, they give up on relationships too easily. I don't think that's true. I think yeah. it's it's generally true of human beings. You know, we we want to get our way and uh, we we quit too easily. But no, I absolutely think it's uh, it's it's necessary. And if you're going to grow, uh, it's you, you got to live through those fights and disagreements. And uh, like I say, Phyllis and I came from such different backgrounds and I mean to this day we will like be in you know think we understand everything about each other and then a circumstance will come up and we're like no how could you (laughs) possibly 50 years and you think that don't you get anything about (laughs) me and it's been 50 (laughs) years and you don't owe me 100 percent what (laughs) so uh but it's a wonderful journey and Mm. I you know I I had a, a a teacher of mine many years ago, a guy named Micho Kushi, um, say to us shortly after we were married, you know, you need to remember that every sev- over a period of seven years, every cell in your body dies and is replaced. So we're constantly, every, you know, our, from our skin to our bones to our brain, uh, our body is creating new cells and sloughing off the old ones. So within about seven years, the person you married is going to be a completely different human being yeah. scientifically. So just be ready for that. And, you know, if, if, if there is spirit, if there is something beyond this skin and bones to us, then what you're attracted to and what you love is that spirit. Um, but, but the manifestation of it's going to change. So it's that bumping heads and that 
willing to I mean there's a lot of a lot of tricks to to learn along the way the biggest one for me has been uh, to never say you know you make me feel this way you make me angry mm -hmm. or you make me anything what you can say is when you do something ah. uh, this is how I feel that lets the other person go oh gee I wouldn't want you to feel that way instead mm. of, uh, you know, giving them control over your feelings. You, you own, you have the right to feel anything you want. Mm. You just don't have the right to think somebody else caused it. You caused it. So, you oh. know, th then you can start to see each other and, you know, anyway, that's, that's, okay. that's helped us a lot. Did you, did you write a lot before, like outside of this journey, outside of a Phyllis's medical journey or, you journaling your um, adventures of where you were going. Did you ever write poetry? Because I feel like a lot of these, a lot of the stuff that you write on here, there's there's some little parts that seem very poetic, <laughs> in its in its nature. And I'm like, well, uh, and I forgot there was one. I, I forgot the exact quote. I should have written it down, but I think I think you were like comparing. Um, I think it was like something about like a radio. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I know exactly down. what you mean. What I said was because it was in the early days of Phyllis's uh, coma, and um, like w we'd almost get through, she'd almost respond to something, and then and then she'd fall back unconscious. And I compared it to like her trying to listen to you know. A, a radio, which now I don't know if anybody even knows what that's <laughs> like, because your your radio comes in over your computer or your yeah. phone or something, and they either work or they don't. But in the old days, we had these radios with batteries or electric cords, and you tried to tune in the signal. Mm -hmm. And I guess KUAF people still, yeah. you know, listen to on an actual <laughs> radio. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it, the the signal wasn't always clear. You had to move around to get a clear signal. And in, and if you didn't have a clear signal, there'd be static. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I compared it. But To your bigger question, uh, yes, I've, I've wanted to write my whole life. And I, I, I wrote poetry for years. I never did anything with it. I still have it tucked away Bug in folders. Bug number two? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Bug number two. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but uh, I, I've never never attempted to write for publication. Mm -hmm. I ended up, uh, somehow I, I felt I need to live life first before I, you know, had any right to, uh, to write about to write it. But, um, I, I, I did a lot of writing in my life, like Catholic Charities, um, you know, a, a big part of what we do is to write up explanations for immigrants mm -hmm. to submit to the immigration service of what their story is. And it's all important to be able to tell that story clearly uh, if you're trying to get the benefit you're seeking. And that's true in all kind of things. So writing has served me well. And talking about Catholic Charities, like I said, you were the former director mm -hmm. for 20 years. Um, and you kind of became like a go-to for a lot of the local attorneys because I, I would see times where I had people that were volunteering uh, at our DACA clinics that we would do in the community. And they'd be like, oh, let me call Frank real quick. Let me just run this by Frank, see what he thinks. <laughs> uh, how did you feel about taking that role in the community where attorneys were reaching out to you for immigration advice? Well, it w that that did happen, and, and they were very sweet. I, I think there were... Uh, 
a lot of them that were a lot smarter than me, but <laughs> the uh, I did have the advantage that, um, and this will sound odd, but I had the advantage of practicing law without going to law school. Mm. Um, so the immigration law has a provision that allows nonprofits to uh, employees to get uh, get authorized to practice immigration law in in you know a very narrow uh, area of the law, just helping. Um, uh, low-income immigrants to seek the benefit that they qualify for. So, you know, an attorney has got to get through law school, has got to study everything from real estate law to divorce law to you name it. Uh, And I had the advantage that I could study immigration law only in a very intense way. Is that the accredited legal rep? Accredited Title, legal rep. That's what Myra yep, is too. That's what Myra is too, uh, and uh, I was very proud of getting that, and and proud of Myra and all the women in Catholic charities that were uh, smarter than I was in in learning this law. Um, but yeah, and it was kind of ironic because my big beef with my dad way back when I was you know in college was that I had to go to law school, and I absolutely refused to go to law school, uh. and then. 30, 40 <laughs> years later, I end up practicing law. But, um, yeah, I, I found it. Uh, in fact, um, my next book <laughs> hey. will Excuse be about me. all the things that, uh, that I failed in different. I, I had six, at least six or seven, maybe eight different occupations in my life, uh, mostly in business. And they were all very instructional, but, but I never found them. I never woke up in the morning looking forward to doing it. And I just discovered immigration law by accident because I saw an ad at the church for uh, director for Catholic Charities. Mm. Um, And once I started doing it, uh, it was was absolutely a joy every day I ever did it. Um, It's it's one. It's fascinating Two, the first teacher I had. Roy Petty was an incredible lawyer is dead now, but uh, was my mentor. And he said, look, here's what you want to tell your clients. The bad news is uh, there is nothing I see in in the law that can help you. And the good news is this law is so complicated, the most complicated law ever written, much more than tax law. This law is so complicated that if we look deep enough, there just may be somewhere in here something in the law that's going to help you. So that proved to be true, and it proved to be uh, like there was never a boring day. Mm. Immigration law has so many exceptions uh, that if one is patient enough and cares enough about your clients, that you know there, there's a way. Yeah. And I like giving. I don't like people saying there's no way. I, I like people that tell me, well, let's keep looking. Mm. And in, in, in this time that you were the director of Catholic Charities, uh, what are some of the things that you were most proud of in your work? Mm. Um, so many things. Um, proud of the employees that worked with me, uh, incredibly intelligent women, who none of whom had law degrees, uh, who um, especially the older women there who grew up in an environment where uh, women weren't really expected to excel um, as much as men. 
uh, and the job opportunities accordingly and the salaries accordingly uh, were, were less. Um, and in spite of all of that, um, these women had ended up at Catholic Charities, most of them before me, uh, and, and they got up every day and helped people. Mm. And um, somewhere along about, well, actually from, from the beginning of the 20 years that I was there, which was the year 2000, right before 2001, before Y2K um, or 9-11 came along, um, Congress passed this law. And, you know, it was back in the days when Republicans and Democrats who might not like each other but could still sit down and yeah. and do something. So they sat down and, and they made a law and said, look, if if somebody's here without documents and they haven't committed a crime, uh, you know, they're contributing to the economy, they're, they're part of us, uh, let's just say you can pay $1,000 and join the team. You can get a permit and start working and work towards citizenship. Yeah. Um, so we passed that law, and and I came in just just after that law had been passed. So for about a year, there were thousands of people helped, and it was just really exciting. And, and there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, disagreement. There weren't a lot of people, a lot of hatred stirred up from that. It was a good solution. And then... Uh, 9-11-2001 happened. Um, um, foreigners uh, attacked our country, and suddenly, uh, you know, that word Im alien immigrant was a hate yeah. word, and they did not renew that law. And so for the next 20 years, we, we tried to get back there, and, and we never have. Things have only gotten worse, yeah. uh, I hate to say. But what I'm proud of in the meanwhile was that, uh, like, we used every program that came along. DACA was a wonderful one, mm -hmm. um, although it was, it was always doubly frustrating because DACA said, and without going to all the details of what that is for people that don't know, but it, it said, okay, you know, we'll let you be here, we'll let you have a permit, we'll let you run around, but we won't let you go anywhere, we won't let you go further. We won't let you go towards citizenship. Yeah. We won't. We won't ever promise that this is forever. We'll just give it to you two years at a time, so you can, you know, wake up in a cold sweat at night about what if they don't. Yeah. You know, so so there was there was a lot of negative about it, but uh, th there was this chance, which, you know, I, I'm I'm so proud of Springdale. Springdale was was uh, I won't I won't say the negative things it was when I moved here in 19. 82, mm -hmm. but uh, it was not a place anyone of color wanted to be. Yeah. Certainly not at after dark, because they had mm -hmm. signs up about after dark not being welcome. They had mayoral candidates that uh, use the N-word and uh, like were hateful and horrible. And, and from that, when I went to work at Catholic Charities, we would have elderly which I guess I'm part of that class now, but <laughs> elderly white neighbors come up. I remember this one guy walked up one day and, and our secretary came back and got me and said, I don't know, this guy says he wants to talk to the director. He's a neighbor. I'm you know, afraid he's complaining. And I'm like, oh, we got too many cars or something. And I come to the front and he said, I need your help. And I go, okay, how can I help you? He said, well, there's this 
this immigrant family across the street from my house, and they've got a girl, I think she's in kindergarten, and she crosses the street every day to walk to school, and I'm worried about her. I want you to talk to them and tell her that I'll come take her and walk her to school every day. <laughs> and wow. This was not what I expected from Springdale. Yeah. So uh, I'm not saying, not saying anything, you know, that, that it's always been perfect there, but I think the heart of people everywhere mm -hmm. is really, you know, leans toward compassion yeah. if, if they don't get misled. Mm, I agree. Because there's been even, there's even been times where people will say, oh, Alabama or, or North Carolina are horrible mm. states, but then you go there and then you see good people. Yeah. Like there's good people everywhere the same way that there's bad people everywhere, yeah. right? Um, what are some ways that you take care of your mental health, Frank? Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, currently, currently for me, and it's always been, it's like finding time to be in nature. Mm. Uh, and and it, right now, you live in nature, right? We live, we live in the edge of a national forest over in Newton County. Uh, we're really blessed to have this, this little piece of the forest. But uh, the thing I learned uh, that I talk at places about in, in the book is that, guess what? Nature is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Nature does not get banned from the city. Yeah. Uh, we just happen to build on top of it and forget it's there. Mm. So... Uh, uh, one day was I was in the hospital and, and um, it was at Washington Regional and things were looking really grim for Phyllis. I, uh, I had been told that really there's a 50% chance she'll live, but really it's more like a 10% chance. Um, and I was pretty shook up and I walked out the door of the hospital and and I looked up and there was this, the most amazing rainbow I've ever seen in my life. It had mm -hmm. been some rain, and the entire sky was covered with this, what looked like like 100-yard-wide rainbow all the way across the sky. Oh. Um, and, and I just, I mean, I looked up, and I said, really, God? Mm. <laughs> You're going to ask me to feel joy at this <laughs> point? And then I laughed and said, yeah, yeah, he but is. Isn't it isn't it a good thing when when that 50% ends up being, you know, you end up getting that good 50% and things end up going good? That's yeah. that's the same thing they told my father when he was in a coma back in 2003. They said, oh, he's got about 50% chance. And he ended up living, you know, for many years after uh -huh. afterwards. I just think, but then there's always that other 50%. And, but it's it's a blessing to be on the good side of that 50%, right? Yeah, it's, it's a blessing to be alive every day. And... You know, mental health is, it's a huge issue these days. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's only gotten, I mean, COVID only made it worse. Yeah. I mean, I, the idea that, that with all of our problems and something would come along to say, look, stay away from everybody. Stay home. Don't have friends. Don't make new friends. Don't go in strange places. Don't go out and socialize. Don't dance. Don't, don't get too close to people. <laughs> don't get close away. to people. Yeah. Keep your guard up. You know, not good. So... Uh, it, it was all necessary, but uh, hopefully we're on the other side of that now. And um, but yeah, uh, trusting other people and um, trusting in nature. Mm, that's beautiful. Definitely nature. Nature is 
Man, sometimes when whenever you're just overwhelmed by the technology, by social media, mm. especially if you're on Twitter, it can be a very negative <laughs> experience. And there's yeah. a lot of us that are on Twitter a lot, a good portion of our day because we get our news from there. Um, so definitely take care of your mental health for those that are listening. Do you still keep a website where people can kind of like stay connected with you? Or do I you do. Put, uh, do you blog on there? Uh, I I. I want to. <laughs> I'm going to. What website? It's called it? frankhead.com. Okay. Actually. Frankhead.com. So make yeah. sure that you all go to frankhead.com and hopefully Frank will, will update the website <laughs> a little bit more often with, with updates. Now I'm going to have to. Yes, <laughs> now because people are going to start going over there. And make sure you check out Frank's book, The Possibility of All Things, available where, Frank? Again. I'm available on Amazon, uh, on barnesandnoble.com. Uh, uh, not the store itself, but online. And uh, if you're local at the Fayetteville Library. Well, there you go. Oh. I have my copy right in front of me. I'm about to ask Frank to sign it after after we finish recording. But Frank, thank you for, for joining me today mm-hmm. and for sharing your stories. And I will catch you in the next the next book that you write. We'll be here discussing that as well. Thank you, Irvin. Can I put in one very selfish plug go ahead. before we go, which go is um, October 18th. Uh, at the Fayetteville Library, okay. we're going to do a uh, a book reading, okay. uh, and uh, a, we've done this in a couple of towns now, and it's done real well. My my good friend uh, John Ray, who's a, a local incredible local musician and a lot of other things, Renaissance man. John Ray's going to play music from the book, uh, oh. and we alternate music with a book from readings from the book. So okay, so October eighteenth at five thirty. Five thirty, Fayetteville Public Library. Yeah. Myra and I will be there. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Frank. That's the end of this episode. This was episode 147 of the District 3 podcast. We'll catch you all next week.